Welcome back to all of our loyal Rare Petro content subscribers. And if you're new to this podcast, welcome to this week's episode of the Periodical Podcast. I'm your host, Kevin, and I'm joined by my good friend, Tavis. What up? And we are excited to bring you another episode. It's going to cover the content in this week's periodical, which covers why oil supply is lower than you would think. I released the periodical on our website this past Wednesday, September the 30th. So make sure you head over there and give it a view. It's got a lot more information and some figures that'll help you understand what we're going to talk about today. But let's jump into it. So if you've tuned in for the past few episodes, you would know that we've been discussing global oil demand for the past couple of weeks. And as we've pointed out, the coronavirus destroyed global crude oil demand at a time when the world was producing record amounts of oil. And as a result, global crude oil storage began to fill at a rapid pace, which forced producers around the world to bring 12 million barrels per day of crude oil production off the market to balance the glut in global storage. And as demand returns, the world must start bringing the oil initially held off the market back online. But, you know, production isn't just kind of like a faucet where you can turn on the nozzle, turn off the nozzle just to bring it back up. And because of that lag, global production will not be able to keep up with growing global oil demand. Therefore, even if demand returns to pre-pandemic levels by the end of the year, it will take significantly longer for the global supply to rebalance due to the geopolitical influence of the world's most important commodity. Now, some quick numbers before you before we dive into the global supply picture. In the fourth quarter of 2019, just months before society was completely upended by the global pandemic, global production averaged 101.73 million barrels per day, which was about 700,000 barrels shy of the highest average on record one year prior. A few months later, that average was closer to 90 million barrels per day as global producers came together in an attempt to curb the out-of-control supply and demand imbalance. By the end of the first quarter of 2020, global supply went from nearly record highs to lows not seen in the past decade. The group that did the most to control the out-of-control supply problem is a group we have talked about before. OPEC Plus, baby. In April, the group held a meeting to discuss actions to cut production. After several marathon video conferences, the group confirmed that their commitment to stabilize energy markets while acknowledging the importance of international cooperation to ensure the resilience of the energy industry. That's just a fancy way to say that they came together to see who was shutting in production. Long story short, they decided to cut overall crude oil production by 9.7 million barrels per day for May and June, and then from July through the end of 2020, cut production by 7.7 million barrels per day. Moving forward, they plan to cut by 5.8 million barrels per day from January 2021 through the end of April 2022. Therefore, nearly 6 million barrels per day of global production is set to remain offline throughout 2022, and thus far, members have been holding up their end of the deal. Well, for the most part. Even though participants had nearly a month to prepare for these historic cuts, compliance in May was, well, fairly unsatisfactory, especially for the leaders of the group, who many of which pledged additional cuts to support this imbalance. Overall compliance was a mere 85% in May as OPEC members Iraq, Nigeria, and Angola, along with non-OPEC participant, which basically makes up the OPEC+, plus. Kazakhstan, they were publicly called out by their counterparts for their overall production, hampering the group's target. What were some of their individual numbers? Do you know? How low did it go? Let me pull up the figures here, but Iraq, Nigeria, and Angola were only like 
10% compliance. Yeah, I mean, it's, yeah. So we're looking at Saudi Arabia, looking at, uh, look at this, 110% compliance, and then yeah. other people, 10, 20, 30, they're really lagging behind. And this isn't some small matter either. Their economies are built around this. So I can see how people would definitely get upset. In June, OPEC produced the organization's lowest collective outputs in September 1990, when the launch of the first Gulf War nearly wiped out crude oil production in Iraq and Kuwait. As a result, OPEC Plus was in 106% compliance of its committed production cuts for the month with Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, and the UAE leading the charge from their additional cuts. But on June 6th, OPEC and its allies agreed to continue their current production cuts through July due to ongoing demand concerns, yet output rose dramatically in July as Saudi Arabia and other Gulf members ended their voluntary extra supply curbs. So basically, instead of dropping back to that 7.7 level in July, they decided to keep that 9.7 moving forward. But because, like you said, Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, UAE, they agreed upon extra cuts. But like you said, their economies are built off this. So they said, all right, you know, we're going to rein back to be in yep. what we expected um, but we're not going to do any more. But anyways, July's increase in production was actually the biggest since April when OPEC briefly pumped at will before the supply cut was agreed upon. But basically due to geopolitical issues and some overperformers, the group was still in about 94% compliance. But the UAE actually emerged as a major laggard in delivering their agreed upon, agreed upon production cuts, while Iraq, Nigeria, Angola, and Kazakhstan, who came under previous scrutiny for not making their outputs, actually dropped their production so much that the four helped the group maintain 101% compliance throughout August. So, Tavis, I mean, 85% is the lowest that they were in compliance in May. And that's really not that bad, if you think about it. Granted, it's nothing like the 101, 106%, but they... But if we just say... They're going to be in 85% compliance through all of 2021. That's another 5 million barrels off the table, guaranteed. Oh, yeah. It's still super significant and really impressive considering those other countries, like you mentioned, were in the range of 10 to 20% compliance. They were still able to pull off 85 as a group. Mm -hmm. And moving forward, they'll probably continue to do that. I mean, OPEC Plus alone, that's, that's a max of 97 million barrels per day that the world can produce, which is, what, 97% of pre-pandemic levels? Yeah, I mean, a little bit more, but yeah. exactly. I mean, with OPEC Plus, you know, removing 5 million barrels a day, the max that the rest of the world can theoretically produce is only 97 million barrels a day. But we're going to talk about how that's not really possible. So next, we're going to talk about the situation down in Venezuela. I know I've talked about it a little bit, but at one point... Venezuela was once considered one of Latin America's most prosperous countries. A founding member of the OPEC group, Venezuela was the world's 11th biggest oil producer in 2019, but years of economic mismanagement, cronyism, and corruption have sparked a monumental economic collapse, which saw the oil-rich country become one of the poorest in South America. As a result of the current social and political turmoil in the area, the OPEC deal exempts the country from its pledged production cuts. On a surface level, the move seems surprising since Venezuela has the largest oil reserves of any country in the world and has historically been a production powerhouse. But investigating recent current events uncovers the move was meant to save a struggling country. So back in the day, Venezuela was actually responsible for producing a tenth of the world's oil, 
almost all of the country's export income and a significant portion of the country's GDP. But now all those accolades have basically collapsed. And that collapse was initially triggered by the oil price collapse beginning in the mid-2014s. But by 2016, as oil prices weakened even further and Venezuela's economic crisis snowballed, vital spending on crucial maintenance of oil infrastructure and operations plunged, which, well, it brought the economy with it. The situation has become so severe that the IMF predicts Venezuela's GDP will contract by 15% during 2020 and another 5% in 2021 due to the collapse of Venezuela's economically vital petroleum industry. You do hate to see it. Things are bad in Venezuela right now. With U.S. sanctions aimed at defunding the corrupt government, President Maduro's regime can't access urgently needed capital to repair and maintain vital oil infrastructure or perform the necessary development activities to maintain oil production. Although that really could be the least of their worries. Even so, Venezuela produced a daily average of 339,000 barrels of crude per day in July, compared to 755,000 a year earlier and almost one-seventh from a decade earlier. So, I mean, this essentially signals the death for Venezuela's economically crucial, but really stricken petroleum industry, especially when analysts have predicted that their oil production has the possibility to fall to zero by the end of 2021. I mean, going from producing a tenth, tenth of the world to zero? I mean, that's huge. I mean, it also it sounds absurd, too, it, because it is. It is absurd. But Baker Hughes rig data showed zero active rigs in the country in July. So if you're not drilling new wells, I guess you're not producing new wells and... There's no plan to bring oil production back to pre-2014 or even pre-pandemic levels. I mean, yeah. It's collapsed. Exactly. And it doesn't look like moving forward, things are going to look any better. So with another, I mean, half a million barrels of production left off the table for this foreseeable future, I mean, now with OPEC and Venezuela combined, we're down to 96.5 million barrels per day max and we still aren't done yet. Oh, it can go lower. Talking limbo. So, similar to the situation in Venezuela, the oil industry in Libya has been on the verge of collapse after more than nine years. Nine years of neglected maintenance amid a civil war that's killed thousands and destroyed towns across the country. I mean, where, where were we nine years ago? I was actually living in my parents' basement because I was a child. Yeah, I was going to say, in high school nine years yeah, ago? Yeah, it was way back when. So similar to Venezuela, Libya was also exempt from OPEC production cuts due to, well, socio-political turmoil that has rocked the country, despite having Africa's largest crude reserves. So we've got the king of South America, the king of Africa in terms of production, down to nothing. They don't have to comply. So basically, the lack of basic servicing has left pipelines corroding and storage tanks collapsing. Remedial work at wells alone could cost more than $100 million, and that's the money that their government just cannot afford right now. As a result, Libyan production has absolutely plunged. Back in November, it was at 1.186 million barrels per day. Pretty good. But by January, that level had dropped to 796,000, and then it dropped all the way to 82,000 barrels per day in June. Virtually nothing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we went from 1.1 million to 82,000. Less than 100,000. And half of a year? A few months. <laughs> Just no time whatsoever. And they plan to increase production to 2.1 million barrels per day by 2024. But, I mean, honestly, those plans are in jeopardy. I mean, those recent skirmishes that are just entangling the country's oil facilities. I mean, 
it just it seems like things are just going from bad to worse. Things looked like they were on the up and up on September 21st, though, when the National Oil Company released information on Facebook. Yeah, Facebook. I admit that the infrastructure may not be there for other networks, but they announced that it was set to return to 260,000 barrels per day to the market the following week. You know, that's four times what they were at in June. Problem is, this is 2.5 times the production from August's average and up nearly 100,000 barrels per day from before the blockade of its oil ports and oil fields that was lifted just the week prior. This is welcome news for a country desperately needing oil revenue to support their economy. But it comes across as skeptical. I, I mean, Tavis, I couldn't agree more. Let's, let's look into this. Not only was the announcement made on Facebook, but the NOC noted that it will, quote, only restart production at safe fields and export from safe ports. But the whole reason that their production fell so abruptly during the pandemic was due to occupation by armed groups aimed at eliminating oil production and those associated revenues. I mean, I guess it depends on your definition of safe, huh? If you deem armed mercenaries on site as safe, well, then, hell, they have plenty of places to operate. Well, yeah, I mean, so they <laughs> want to nearly double production in the next week and maintain stable output, but it just seems like as soon as they bring these... Um, you know, facilities back online, they're going to again become occupied by armed militias looking at controlling the government. So even if they do increase to 260,000 barrels per day at the beginning of October, this number is still nearly a million barrels shy of the daily production in quarter four of 2019, you know, just three quarters of a year ago. Yeah. And so now if we're adding and keeping track of these with OPEC, Venezuela, and Libya, max global production we can see in the near term is down to 95 and a half million barrels per day. And guess what? What? We're not done yet. Let's go! So we're going to bring it back home and talk about the supply constraints here in the United States. Now, production has been on the decline since the first quarter of 2020, mainly from scraped capital programs and curtailed production due to reduced oil prices. We know this. We've talked about this plenty of times before. Now, before the pandemic, in the first quarter of 2020, we actually saw the highest output of oil production in U.S. history hitting 13 million barrels per day for actually three months. It wasn't just a, a one and done. So we were holding pretty steady right there. But as prices tanked, producers started curtailing production since the cost to produce was simply uneconomic at those price levels. So from April to August, domestic production fell from 13 million barrels a day to a mere 10.7. That's a big change. But with prices recovering to the mid $40 range minus a few hiccups here and there, production in the U.S. began to slowly creep back up. That was until Hurricane Laura forced Gulf of Mexico producers to shut in about 1.5 million barrels per day, which dropped production to 9.7 million barrels per day for the first time since 2018. But since that minor setback, production is back up to levels seen at the beginning of August, regardless of the multitude of hurricanes that have swept through the Gulf. So during the height of the downturn in May, rigs and completions crews dwindled quickly. Estimates show that completion crews were down a little over 85% and rig count dropped about 60% in just three months. Now that disconnect basically exaggerated an already large accumulation of drilled uncompleted wells or ducts as operators waited for higher prices before completing wells and turning them over to sales. Now, if a company doesn't have any rig contracts, it's actually cheaper to complete a previously drilled duck than to drill and complete an entirely new well. Therefore, within the next few months, 
Domestic production should rise a substantial amount due to the duck inventory that was drawn down when prices stabilized in the mid-40 range during July and August. Since it does take some time to complete and bring those wells online, the associated production influence will not be seen for another few weeks, but the eventual production uptick will be clear. So basically where we're sitting right now is we're down still about 2 million barrels a day from where we were before the pandemic. So hovering around 11. Um, some days it's up a little bit, some days it's down. But production has been on the rise as tight oil operators have brought wells back online in response to those rising prices. And if we look at some of the numbers, the EIA actually expects production to rise to an average of 11.2 million barrels per day in September. Um, we'll see what those numbers look like, but it still kind of seems like a pipe dream since we haven't broken 11 yet. And well, tomorrow starts October. October. <laughs> but anyways, after September, the EIA expects production to decline ever so slightly to average just under 11 million barrels per day for the first half of 2021. Looks like this is because experts predict new drilling activity. It's not going to generate enough production to offset the decline from those existing wells. So am, am I right to assume that if drilling activity does pick up later in 2021, U.S. crude oil production could be expected to surpass, what, levels from this month sometime in the fourth quarter of next year? Yeah, Tavis, that's, that's absolutely right. But that being said, I don't really expect, and neither does the EIA, to <laughs> have those levels surpass really anything higher than those low 12s. So basically, look at that. That's another million barrels of production off the table. So... OPEC, Venezuela, Libya, and the U.S. combined, now we're sitting at a max global production of 94.5 million barrels per day produced basically throughout 2021, which means even more crude is being left in the ground at a time when demand is quickly outpacing supply. So how quick of that outpace are we looking at? So if we look back at August, liquid fuel production averaged about 91.5 million barrels per day, while consumption averaged 94 million, proving the demand is already outpacing supply. And hey, now, I'd like to see that. yeah, now if we look at 2021 as a whole, average demand is estimated to be about 99.1 for the entirety of the year. But if we look at those OPEC plus cuts, Venezuelan oil problem, Libya, United States, we're looking at an average production around 93.9 million barrels per day. So a further 6 million barrel per day supply demand imbalance. So what does this mean for the big players contributing to supply? Well, we got the United States, Saudi Arabia, and Russia, and they will continue to constitute over a third of global supply. And even though the order may shift, they will remain the most stable and reliable resources of global crude oil. And it's really those bottom two thirds that are going to determine how much global supply will be readily available at a moment's notice. But either way, the current total supply is now dropped below necessary demand, and oil prices will need to start reflecting that shift to move the pendulum back into balance. And I'm sad to say, but that is all we have for you guys this week with the Periodical Podcast, and we hope you enjoyed this episode. If you didn't, let us know. Leave us some comments. Send us an email at podcast at redpetro.com, and we would love to hear from you, and I guarantee you we have an episode that you would like if you didn't like this one. And I mentioned this a little bit earlier, but make sure you head over to the Rare Petro website for additional content, including a new podcast segment we published this past week. Well, really, Tavis posted this past week. Some more industry leader spotlights, Tavis's Monday Madness and Basin Breakdowns. There's so much information we're trying to get you guys. So 
make sure you head over to the website and check it out. Hey, appreciate those shout-outs, Kevin. And until we see you next time, take care, everybody. Adios.